it is so rare that the genetics absolutely dictates your future, but having a genetic risk is not the same as having a, a, a phenotypic state or having a disease state. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Jeff Reed has always been loud and proud, nerd that is, from tinkering with computers as a kid to matriculating at Johns Hopkins while his peers were entering 11th grade, to his PhD in physics, to his current work in drug discovery at Regeneron. Today, we'll meet the man behind the pocket protector. <laughs> this is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Chaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genomic and other health data. So, Lisa, what I want to talk with you about is a fantastic, I thought sort of courageous post that you wrote um, coming back from the uh, your your Shishi uh, Aspen <laughs> Ideas Festival yeah. with, 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 with the... Uh, your, your crowd of um, highfalutin intellectuals. Yes. yes, yes, exactly. But um, do you want to talk about that uh, the, the essay you recently wrote? Yeah, you know, I, 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 it's a bit of a stretch, but I had been just been finished reading uh, Frederick Douglass's piece on uh, what July 4th is to, is to black people in America, and written at the time in the 1850s, when, of course, slavery was uh, still very uh, much in, in vogue. And he spoke to a group of anti-slavery people, white anti-slavery people. And what he basically said to them was, you know, the fact that you sit here and say you're against this, uh, against slavery, but do not act is the, is the real crime. And it struck me, not that these are parallel exactly issues, but it struck me because uh, it was the same week that all of the explosion came out in the venture capital world about the unbelievable uh, rampant problem of sexual harassment and, and worse. Right. <laughs> and... Um, how many people were being exposed for having known about it and not done anything about it? Well, that's what I thought was so interesting about your post because it wasn't just you weren't your point wasn't that oh there are thousands thousands of bad actors around. Your point was actually there are relatively s- s- a few you know, VCs or whoever they were or investors who actually were doing the just sort of overtly despicable stuff. But you were talking about how what ena- enables them to function is being in an environment of enablers of people who don't who kind of the majority of people who sort of um, who sort of acquiesce and I thought that was such a powerful message well thanks I you know I, I think it's true and I mean there's the people who actively know specifics and don't act those are really bad people and then there's the people who know it's all going on but literally do nothing to promote the opposite you know an, a, an opening and welcoming and diverse environment and I really for me it was a call to arms for for those people to just to start behaving in a in a way that promotes the field. Well, it's a terrific piece. We'll, we'll include a link to it um, on um, uh, in, in the show notes. Um, and then also get to aspects of um, uh, inspired by that uh, piece and later in this conversation. So we are delighted to welcome to the program today Jeff Reed, the head of genomic informatics at Regeneron. Um, when I joined DNA Nexus in 2014, I had been really excited about what I heard about their collaboration with Geisinger to gather and integrate rich genomic and phenotypic data to inform drug discovery and patient care. But when I arrived, I was absolutely just blown away by both institutions, to be honest. And even three years later, I still look at the Regeneron-Geisinger effort um, and the integration at, uh, at the Regen- uh, Regeneron Genetic Center, RGC, and point to it as really 
I, I honestly think it's the most promising approach to drug discovery and target ID that I've seen all my years in the industry. It's just it's, it's an extraordinary effort, um, and and it seems to be extraordinarily promising. One of the key drivers of this product is a ludicrously interesting person who's become a good friend, uh, Jeff Reed. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So there's so much to discuss, your fascinating journey, but I want to begin with your work at the RGC. Could you tell our listeners what the RGC is trying to do? So I, I, I think the easiest way to think of the RGC is like an academic genome center embedded in a pharma company. And, and the concept is Regeneron has a great history of drug development taking insights about correlations between genotype and phenotype, insights about what uh, the, the biology does based on what we know of the genetics and you know, working with our fabulous technologies in mouse modeling to really understand the biology and then roll that into uh, antibody development into therapeutics that, that can help people. But, but the vision of the RGC is really to move upstream of that and rather than wait for the academic community to come up with the insights about correlations between genotype and phenotype, really participate at a, at a fundamental level in that effort ourselves so that, one, we just understand it better so that as we're, we're moving forward with, with a new target or a new indication or an insight from genetics that can help the drug program, we, we really understand what's going on as well as kind of leverage the speed that we can bring by um, our exquisite automation team really taking uh, – processes that are, let's say, a little bit slower and maybe not as automated in other people's hands and really but making them in incredibly polished, uniform, consistent, and fast. And, it, and it's, a, it's a really cool effort, right? Because, I mean, the idea is for Regeneron is one of the few companies that's both found. First of all, I, th I still think it's run by its founder, George Yankopoulos, who's a, le a legendary physician scientist and um, uh, immunology researcher back at Columbia. And I remember reading in grad, you know, way back, the Yankopoulos and Alt papers. Um, and then he, um, he was found this company. It was pretty much known as a technology company, sort of, you know, this um, – uh, with a velocigene technology, right? They basically are able to make antibodies super fast. Right. But then the question is, well, you know, it's helpful to know what to make antibodies against. And then, so instead of, you know, typically people have like, you know, dr you know individual teams, well, let's look at something in metabolism. Let's look at something in, um, you know, in cardiovascular. Here, this was almost a whole organizational effort to say, hey, let us sort of systematize how we're going to sort of select targets and use and really just sort of buy into genetics. And you have this collaboration where you, a real deep partnership with a number of collaborators, but most, but the, the key one is uh, Geisinger, where um, patients are con are thoroughly consented. They contribute um, their uh, you know their samples, um, and then they and then their their e EMR their clinical data is integrated with the genetic data which you guys produce, and then the result of it is um, some of that's fed back um, in, in sort of a very systematized way to improve patient care at Geisinger as for their MyCode project, as, as they've been really clear in describing, and, and, and have a dashboard, a public dashboard that describes exactly what they've reported back. And meanwhile, you guys are doing this to um, come up with all these, uh, all these uh, new targets. Um, how would you say, how, what are this, what, what makes you feel that it's either working or um, you're making progress? So, I think first and foremost, you, you have to recognize the value of having the right partners here. So Geisinger has been absolutely visionary in the early adoption of electronic medical records. The way that they treat their data is, uh, you know, really unparalleled. I don't know if there are any other efforts. There's maybe one or two other efforts in the world that are really as good with 
taking data from that kind of messy EMR space and bringing it into a data warehouse, bringing it into a space where it's a little more uniform, it's a little more computable. And so working with a partner like that has been fundamentally important to be able to bring what we can bring, which is really the genetic data, and then collaborate on these analyses. And, and you know, one of the really exciting things, particularly about the Geisinger engagement is, you know, as a, as, as a company at Regeneron, we try to keep the focus on helping patients. That's what, that's where I think pharma companies, Regeneron, specifically pharma as an industry, that's where we do best when we keep our eye on the ball in terms of helping people. And so the great thing about the collaboration with Geisinger is it's helping people through uh, ideally the development of new therapeutics and identifying new targets and getting new drugs for uh, unmet needs, but also you know, on the Geisinger side, they're taking our research results, doing uh, clinical validation, and then bringing some of those results back directly to patients. And there's a, a couple great examples now, particularly in, in BRCA, um, you, you know, where people are getting these reports back that are, are being incredibly valuable in helping them identify both cancer risk and early stage cancer. So I, I think it's really about the partnerships. Yeah, I, I sit on the sidelines. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm as steeped in this area as, as you and David, but I, you know, I sit on the sidelines and watch all this genetic work get done. And I, and with the exception of BRCA and a few very, you know, handful of of situations, I just see that the experience of actually using all of this genomic information combined, as it may or may not be with you know phenotypic information, actually impacting patient care at the bedside, so far away still. It just feels to me that it's still a big research project for the most part. Am, am I wrong? Or is am I, I mean, is it 20 years away or two years away? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, as David will, will tell you and people who know me, you know, I'm a bit of a pessimist, right? Like I, I'm kind of show me the money. I don't like the, the idea of people, you know, declaring they're going to do something and then declaring victory because they decided they're going to do something. So, you know, I like to say <laughs> you, you have to, like, hold us That's account. my whole exercise regimen. Right. You have to sort of see what we accomplish. And it is, it is a little bit early. I will say for genetics, there are some clear examples where uh, knowing the genetics can impact care. I think you are also correct that these are – uh, it, really in the minority. And there's an enormous amount of data that comes if you're doing, in particular, if you're trying to do clinical whole genome sequencing. There was that study recently that showed that, you know, uh, variants of, of uh, variable penetrance create a lot of difficulty in, in, in reporting these to patients. And, um, you know, there's, there's some great examples where uh, people have been publicly seen to be carriers of variants that, you know, supposedly confer, you know, consistent vegetative state or things. And, and it's like, well, you know, obviously that person is not in a persistent vegetative state. So, <laughs> well, right. right. No, okay. So it's not, you know, right. 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 On the other hand, um, it seems to me like if you look at what Geisinger publicly has reported out, I mean, they do have, you know, maybe it's still in the level of anecdote, but they do have examples of people who were sequenced purely in the consequence of this study, of, of, of sort of this project, and they were identified with susceptibility. I mean, they keep an exact list. You can look, we'll include a link in the show notes, um, where um, they, you know, of people who were influenced, who were found to be at risk of particular cancer, and then they found a cancer early because they were found to have a cancer, a known cancer susceptibility gene or a known cardiomyopathy gene. And then, um, so there are sort of discrete examples. There are obviously discrete. Yeah, but how do you translate that, I mean, honestly, into practice? Because you also probably found a lot of people with the susceptibility to certain genes that don't have, like you said, they're, they're supposed to be in a vegetative state and they're not, or maybe they are, but not not by the medical not definition. Not vegetative, you think. So, <laughs> 
So how do you how do you actually make practical products out of that that are usable, reimbursable, saleable? You know, consistently. You. Well, I mean, I think people act- try to focus. Actual- I think as the science is developing and we're trying to understand, and you're trying to understand how how stable things are. Uh, I think if you look at, for example, what color genomics is doing, you focus on the set of genes that are, um, you know, so that would, in a sense, that are the most predictive, uh, that are of the most value. And so that's what, for example, companies like color genomics have done with, you know, with, with genes sort of like BRCA or um, with genes sort of that are related to, uh, you know, mismatch repair and Lynch syndrome. I mean, this, um, this, is, Jeff, this is one of the yeah. things that I do think is extremely cool about what Geisinger have done, has done about being extremely public about both what they are reporting on and and what the frequency or the number of those reports are. Because, mm-hmm. again, it's the idea of, well, let's put the reality, let's judge the value of this by the actuality of what it achieves and not by the aspiration. And, yes, right. you're absolutely right that there are a, let's say, narrow number of things that are really reportable and actionable. And I don't think that that's going to change dramatically in a year or two years or five years. I think you will slowly But, but hopefully the research over time will be able to help people understand what's sort of more reliable. And it's also why folks like Zach Kohaney keep pushing for sort of a consumer reports of of uh, precision medicine. So you have a sense of the um, predictability and the durability of test results and as generated by different providers. Right. Well, and patients need to learn how to think about risk. So one of, one of the things that was really uh, transformative for me was uh, Jim Lupski at Baylor, where I used to work, once said, you know, the best genetic test is a good family history. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's so true, right? Like, I know that my family is at risk for diabetes. I still eat crap all the time. Right. And, and, and so if, if the genetics isn't going to necessarily give you much more than that, uh, you know, and people aren't really going to act on it. It's it's sort of like, well, of course, it's not going to change. So, Jeff, two points to respond to that. One, um, I keep thinking about the BRCA work, where you know, there's some there's you know the breast cancer susceptibility gene, where actually what people found is that half the people who carry the gene don't have a family history because families are much smaller than they used to be. So that's an example where, in theory, a super rich family history would be illustrative or informative, but for a variety of reasons, you don't necessarily have access to that. And so that's a great example where the discovery of the BRCA, uh, the, 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 the person who did all the work on the BRCA gene um, um, talked about it. I want to ask you one, I want to, I want to go on to some of your, your, your journey, but I want to ask you one more question about the RGC because it just, it's the single question that blows me away. It seems to me that, you know, I, we, I was at ASH, you know, this big genomics meeting last year, tons of, of abstracts and, and, and podium presentations. You've, you've gotten the science and New England Journal and, and so much stuff coming, coming out of this. Why aren't more pharmas following your lead and doing what you guys are doing? In other words, is it not as successful as it seems? Is it not proven? Or are companies not doing it for structural reasons? Because it just seems to me... I'm watching what's coming out of it. I'm watching the target list. I'm watching the insight that you guys are able to get. And it seems to me it's, it's just revolutionary. I really um, – I don't understand why everyone isn't doing it. So I, What's your thought? Yeah. I mean, my, well, first of all, I'm, I, in some ways I may be the wrong person to ask because I, I like to say this is my first big boy job. So, I, you know, I, I've been an academic kind of my whole life. So I don't necessarily know that I have the most informed perspective on pharma as an industry, right? I mean, I, I understand very well Regeneron and the context I'm in, but I, you know, I don't necessarily know what else is going on outside. I, I, that being said, I will say, I think there is a reticence to um, 
push into this kind of like early R&D thing where you don't know where it's going to go. And it does seem like there's a lot of focus on, I want a drug for this thing, as opposed to, I want to find the genetic signal that is something that maybe is going to give me an insight that's going to allow me to make a therapeutic that does something. Mm -hmm. so, so we tend to be much more agnostic, at least at the RGC level. We do have therapeutic focus areas at Regenera, but we tend to be much more agnostic about what we're looking for. We're looking for good, scientifically valid, defendable you know, testable and provable evidence that there is some association here, and then we think about what we can do with it. I think for some companies that are trying to focus in specific areas, it's hard to just follow the science. They kind of have to follow the science, but in the context of the therapeutic focus area that they're attempting. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have to have a lot of faith it's going to lead to a big market blockbuster. <laughs> you know, otherwise uh, you might end up solving a you know a very small problem I, 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 with a lot of the same said, expense. I, I think that we have shown and others have shown that you can take things that are maybe more narrowly focused and they and you can broaden them. You can find drugs that have impact in rare disease, but once you know how to pull that biological lever in an effective way, you can often expand an indication. You can move into a, a you know a disease area that isn't as rare. So it's sort of like you know if you can make a drug for rare disease, that's great. That's a drug that works. And then you can think about if there are other applications that maybe make it more broadly applicable that, you know, have the better benefits. But then also, if you look at things like PCSK9, I mean, it was identified, you know, you know, as sort of as a positive mutation, um, you know, as sort of this mutation that has a good effect, like really low levels of bad cholesterol. But the idea is that it was in a handful, super rare number of patients, but by emulating it, you can potentially do good in, um, in more patients. Right, and that's sort of the poster child, is getting insights in rare disease and then finding ways of, of using those insights to help a broader spectrum. So we, we we're looking at, uh, you know, how, as I warned you, the time's going by fast. I want to just catch a couple of aspects of your journey of how you got here. I know you grew up in Seattle. Your dad was an engineer at Boeing who brought home lots of computer parts and your first PC was a TRS-80 with souped up memory. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So my, my dad at the time was doing a lot of sort of real estate stuff. And uh, one of the problems that he was dealing with was calculating uh, mortgages and he wanted to run different models of mortgage amortization. And so he wanted to build very large arrays, which maybe sounds very familiar to, you know, what we're doing now. It's just the arrays have billions of cells instead of, you know, hundreds of thousands of cells. And he's doing Monte Carlo analysis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we, we, we bought this memory expansion, the 64K pack, you know, and when it came in the mail, I really clearly remember I like un unwrapping it like Christmas with my dad and my brother and my dad's like, yeah, really? boys, this is more memory than we will ever need for anything. We now have 64K. And it was just like, wow, we could, you know, like the world was our oyster with 64K. And, <laughs> and, then, and then in a week, right, we realized that, you know, there, there were limits on that as well. So you, I know you're a precocious kid. You went to Johns Hopkins early, but transferred to Harvard, Harvey Mudd because you finally felt like you found your people. Um, and then while you were studying physics there, you nurtured a side interest in horrible music, <laughs> um, which we have a clip of. So uh, 
When I was at Harvey Mudd, I got very interested, well, even before Harvey Mudd, I was somewhat interested in kind of experimental and odd music. So at the time, it was termed industrial music. And as you, as you pointed out, it's often very ambient and kind of unlistenable. Um, although it has had actually a lot of impact in the music we listen to today. Things like what Skrillex does, I think, are heavily influenced by um, kind of these things that have come before and Nine Inch Nails. Uh, as, as well as kind of coming out of that. But I was actually, I, I had a radio show. There was a radio station uh, at Pomona College, and as one of the Claremont Colleges, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to work there. So I had this kind of industrial radio show, and I parlayed that eventually into being the music director at the radio station, which, you know, the, the kids of today are not even going to understand the concept of a radio station. But um, Yeah, really? But it was, it was really fun. It was really interesting. And, um, you know, I, I sort of got a little bit involved in, the like uh, kind of music industry stuff. Went to some music industry parties and met some people. And... Did you wear one of those dead mouse hat, you know, head things? No, I, I, I never did. Although, although I did get to see uh, Einstein and Neubauten play in L.A. And I, God bless I, I you. had a fundamentals <laughs> of mathematics exam the next day, so I'm like, you know, queued up for this show that was like this, like, oh, I've always wanted to see this band, you know, and I'm sitting like studying like group theory while I'm waiting to get into this show. So um, you were hell bent on never having a date, a physicist doing this kind of music. Oh yeah, and you're yeah, hell bent. So, so you did this, but uh, but yeah. At, at one point, one of the A and R guys offered me a job, and I'm like, well, you know, I I just do this for fun. I'm a physicist. I'm not a I'm not a radio guy. But damn it, Jim, I'm a physicist. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I know you went to grad school at UW, and you sort of split your time in because um, you're doing some pure physics when or uh, in Seattle at CERN in Switzerland and at Brookhaven. At the end, you said you were done with it, and you didn't want to be a physics monk, so then you switched to Baylor. But what I want to get to is um, Lisa and I started this show by um, talking about uh, Lisa's recent discussion of diversity, specifically gender diversity, in VC ranks. And I know you've been similarly impassioned about LGBT rights. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey here? Yeah. So I, I came out in grad school, and uh, you know, referencing the earlier comment about not getting a date, I think I was doing one of the things that I have seen uh, replicated in many LGBT people's lives, which is you take an external passion and, you know, I wasn't ready to come out. I wasn't ready to deal with sort of trying to be gay in the world. And so it was easier to, like, focus on the things that I really loved, which was math, which was physics, which was music. And it can be very useful because it's, you know, it's very focusing, but it can also be kind of lonely and isolating. And so when I was in grad school, I finally sort of realized, you know, this is a thing that I need to be more honest with myself about, I need to be more honest with my family about, and I came out, and it was actually, you know, other than a few kind of awkward conversations, it sort of settled down pretty rapidly, and, and I realized I was living in actually a really great environment, Seattle, uh, this was in the mid-90s, even at the time, was re really a great city to be out in. And your Mormon parents were good with this? There was some rockiness early on. There's, uh, my, my coming out story is slightly, I mean, it's hilarious to me now. It wasn't hilarious at the time, but I was driving my mom's car for various reasons that aren't that interesting. And uh, I got the advice that I should go to my parents, make it very clear that I was going to tell them something important. So I scheduled the time which to meet them. I never did that. I brought my mom flowers, brought my dad chocolates. I never did that and sat them down and said, I have something to tell you. <laughs> 
That was your first mistake. You should have brought your mom the chocolates. It would have been far more therapeutic. <laughs> Maybe I should have because my dad was much more okay with it. He just sat there eating chocolates. <laughs> but no, I, so, I, I, so I come out to my mom and, and her first comment was, well, I thought you'd crash my car. And then she starts crying and saying, well, I really wished you'd crash oh my, my car. Gosh. You know, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. She decided that the thing that this was about was wrecking her car. And, but, you know, she, she more or less got over that and uh, and. Things are quite good with my family, which is not. Did you find that it affected your work at all? I mean, you're already pretty deeply into your career and or or deeply into the start of your career. And did it change the way people looked at you at all in the workplace? It, it, It didn't much because I was in graduate school. And so, you know, the rules for grad students are, are, I think, somewhat different. I was also, you know, I was spending two months at a time, three months at a time, a month at a time at CERN and then at Brookhaven Lab. So I was sort of you know, kind of hopping around in different environments. And I never I, I never really felt any kind of animus or bias um, when I was in graduate school. Later, like as a postdoc and a young faculty member, there's a, there's a few instances where there were cases where, you know, I, word came back to me about other faculty members who were like, you know, well, could he, could he just be a little less gay, right? Um, and there, there was an example where somebody once asked me if I was married, uh, and I, at the time, was actually, I, I met my now husband doing sort of gay rights activism in Houston. One of the things, if I was going to move to Houston, I wanted to make sure that I was in an okay situation. So I got very involved uh, politically and worked a lot with the GLBT political caucus there. Um, and so I kind of explained that, well, you know, I, I have a partner, we bought a house together, and we would be married if it were not for the laws at the time in Texas, which kept us from getting married. And that later came back to me with, well, you know, can you... Can you just, you know, if they ask you if you're married, just say no. TMI. TMI, you know, dude. Just leave it alone, <laughs> right? Like, don't, don't be political about it. And I'm like, well, you know, if, if you ask the question, I'm going to answer it. So. so were you nervous about moving to Houston? I was very nervous about moving to Houston. And, and you know, I'd heard a lot of stories. I got actually a great piece of advice, uh, which I've kept to this day, was, like, dress better. Like it was, you know, in grad school, I dressed like a like a gay grad student in Seattle in the '90s. So sometimes I would wear like club clothes to the lab because I would be going out to the to the bars later, you know. And so um, <laughs> to listen to crappy music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, the advice was, you know, maybe maybe dress a little more professionally, and, and I and I started doing that. I actually found that that um, uh, you know that's very sort of useful for both setting your expectations about what you're doing uh, at work and also kind of putting people at ease to, you know, this is a professional person who's operating in a professional way. Interesting. And have you now, and you're deep into your career and in, in the corporate world and all of that, does it matter? You know, it, it doesn't. And I will say I'm going to I'm gonna unabashedly toot the horn of Regeneron here. When I, when I came to Regeneron, I was very clear. I got some great advice early on, which was be as out as possible in the application process because – Anyone who uh, you go to work for, you want to know right up front if they're going to have a problem with you, and if they're going to have a problem with you, you don't want to work for them. So I was I was very clear with Regeneron up front. It's like, look, you know, one of the reasons we were considering moving was Jim and I wanted to get married, and we couldn't get married in Texas at the time. So we wanted to know that we were moving to a state where we could get married. We wanted to know that I was going to, you know, come to a job that was going to be good. And, and Regeneron was great. They basically said, oh, well, you know what? We have this mechanism for forming employee interest groups, but it's not top down. It's sort of grassroots. And, you know, so that kind of created an opportunity for me to, to push for this uh, employee interest group. So now we have this formalized employee interest group. We marched in the New York City Pride March uh, just 
this uh, last couple weeks ago, uh, had almost 100 people, had, I think, as many allies as we had LGBT people. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, community work with the local, the LOFT, which is the local LGBT center near Regeneron. We actually, Regeneron was named the Business Ally of the Year Award by the LOFT. And, and Regeneron has been hugely supportive of this. Um, we're, we're now working uh, with OSTEM, the Out in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics group that is trying to identify out students to get them internships and get them positions, kind of like, you know, these are some of the things that you've been doing, like with C-Sweetener, just providing an opportunity for people to have contact with people in industry uh, who can provide an example of what a career could look like for them. And so. Uh, Regeneron has been an absolutely fabulous place to, to, to you know, do the science I do and to, to do it as an out. Yeah, it seems to me, I mean, I, you know, my, my armchair observation is it's becoming less and less of an issue in corporate America. And it probably depends on whether you're in Kansas or whether you're in California, uh, you know. But for the most part, I think, uh, you know, in my local experience in Northern California and places in New York and Boston where I go, it seems to... This issue seems so to representative. Yes, yeah, so not representative, probably, <laughs> but but for the most part, where the big corporations of today are headquartered, seems to become become a not big issue, at least from a corporate s- standpoint. I'm sure that people have yeah, still I, have I mean, their day to day issues, I, I, but you know, I I agree with you, but I you know I will say like there are a lot of people who are in situations where they're in states where they can yeah. be, where they can be fired for being gay. There, are, yeah, you know, sure. Um, you know, people who are trans, who are starting to transition. When I was at University of Houston, uh, one of my colleagues uh, transitioned while I was there, and there was the usual, you know, really kind of awkward situation where someone people knew as as a man was transitioning to a woman, and, and not everybody was like, let's say, totally okay with that. Yeah, and, you can be fired so, for being gay. I'm still stuck on that. Oh, there are absolutely states in the union. Lisa's right now shaking her head, like nodding with that. Really? Where you can yeah, be absolutely. fired. For, yeah. Especially like teachers and things, people who interact with children. Yeah, it's yeah. still very you much an issue. Housing, housing discrimination. Like you can you can be evicted for being gay. There there are. This is this is why. Um, you know, organizations like Human Rights Campaign and uh, the the Trevor Project, and um, you know, there's a, a variety of them are are sort of working so hard to create more awareness because, you know, it just just recently in Texas, Texas is looking like the Supreme Court is going to be trying to reinterpret, let's say, the federal marriage laws to uh, strip gay people of some of the marriage rights in Texas, and these things these things are happening like right now. To bring it back to the genetic side for a minute, do you worry at all? Does it concern you at all that this could, this could, this discrimination stuff could uh, find its way into genetics? You know, people with certain genes could be discriminated against. And already, obviously, they can on on the insurance front, the life insurance front. But what about in in life? You know, if there are genes that are tied to either certain you know diseases or certain personality traits or whatever, does it concern you at all? You know, I, I, I guess it doesn't because going back to our previous conversation and thinking about the penetrance of some of these things, you know, it is so rare that the genetics absolutely dictates your future. So it's sort of hard to point to that, at least, you know, maybe this is my idealized view, but, 
you know, having a genetic risk is not the same as having a, a, a phenotypic state or having a disease state. Yeah, if you're an in, if you're in, if you're intellectually smart enough to make that distinction, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I mean, yes, like the and, risk well, gene, and, or, the, or I mean, I mean, you're, I, I, what you're sort of obliquely referring to, Lisa, was I mean, this is like a decade old, the gay gene, right? Wasn't that like a decade ago? Yeah, I mean, or, I'm thinking more about genes for like mental health. If you right, have a gene right. that says depression, you might be schizophrenic or depressed or something. You know, should you be? allowed to be discriminated against. Those might be well be genetic traits. Who knows? I don't know. Well, you know, we've, we've done a lot in CNVs, and CNVs have a lot to do with various uh, mental states, uh, autism spectrum disorder, uh, schizophrenia, right? There's a variety of, of rather well-known loci that some of them are, are pretty, um, you know, they're pretty highly penetrant. And so, I, you know, I, I guess that, that could be an issue, although, you know, how is somebody going to find out what your genotype is? I mean, you know, it's it's hard enough to to figure out um, you know what somebody's phone number is. It just it's it seems like unlikely that that information is going to sort of broadly become available to the world. And you know, I guess maybe through the health insurance system, if somebody could get access, or if people made you take tests to say, you know what, we're you can have a lower rate if you're negative at this variant and at this, and right. so we can get and um, all right. So final question. Um, what the one topic we haven't talked about here is your expertise in cocktails. Um, and you, every time we get together, I feel like it's an education. So you have to tell Lisa and I the best place to get, an, a, to get a good drink in um, New York, San Francisco, Houston, and Boston. But you can pick any of those. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm liking for Houston because I'm going there in a few weeks, and I, you know, I could really use some help on the uh, – where to party in Houston front. So, so, so let, me, let, me, let me go Houston because that's kind of where I came by my uh, interest in, in cocktails. Like there was, you know, this moment, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever, when craft cocktails sort of became a thing and it was a thing in Houston. There's a great bar called Anvil. Uh, it's on Westheimer. I used to live sort of across the street from it. Um, that does just really, really interesting, really like high quality ingredients, very thoughtfully mixed. They have a very big menu. Um, they have a lot of, you know, a, a lot of this kind of um, kind of elevated food and elevated drink is really about ingredients. They have just an, an enormous collection of, of liquors. They have an enormous collection of um, you know, bitters and the various things that one uses. And so I would, I would strongly recommend Anvil. If you go there, uh, uh, one of their sort of signature drinks is called the Brave. You should check that out if you're into sort of smoky, um, kind of intensely flavored. She's drink. writing it down, by the way, uh, Jeff. <laughs> She's, Lisa and I are very serious about yeah, so our... Yes, I'm going to go there with my there's NASA also, buddies. Just down the street from that, there's... Uh, actually, I think it's owned by the same owner. So just down the street from that, there's a great uh, a beer sort of pub concept thing called uh, Hay Merchant that has something like 100 uh, beers on tap and they have beers Lisa, on tap. Lisa, I don't think Lisa does beer. I yeah, think I'm not writing that on. You had me, you had me at whiskey. I, I, you already <laughs> won it, yeah. Yeah, so Anvil. Check out, check out Anvil. One of, it's one of my favorite. All right. So, nice. uh, Jeff, it's fantastic conversation. I'm glad we are able to uh, cover so much ground. Super having you join us. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I, I always enjoy hearing it, so it was even more fun uh, participating. Well, that, all right, Lisa, that was awesome. And you have a good recommendation for your upcoming uh, NASA party uh, Houston trip. That's right. Yeah, I am. I'm, I am going to Houston to be I am on this NASA Mission to Mars Advisory Committee on Health, and I'm going to go there and make sure that our health is severely impaired at the Anvil. That's my plan. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought that was a really interesting conversation yeah. that covered so much ground with uh, uh, Jeff Reed, who is the uh, director of genomic informatics at uh, the RGC at Regeneron. Really glad we also got into his um, uh, the experience with uh, with uh, with LGBT, and I was wondering how you thought that related to your um, what you were talking about at the beginning of the show yeah. with gender diversity. Well, you know, I think. First of all, it's always, to me, the most interesting part of these things is hearing people's actual personal story. I mean, these are all smart people that had amazing accomplishments, and that's fun to hear about. But to hear about their humanity is always really interesting to me, and I think to people who listen to the show. Um, you know, I I just think discrimination of all types is so disgusting and horrible that I can't even fathom why people bother to take the time to do it, much less, you know, feel strongly about it. And... Um, you know, I think whenever you see, you know, large or small victories on those fronts, it's a positive thing. And so it's nice to hear Jeff's story. And um, I've been gratified to hear the story of, of the women who've been coming forward and, and telling theirs lately. And I think, you know, the minute people who are discriminated against feel empowered to speak out is the minute things start to change for them. And I, I, I encourage that in all people. I uh, couldn't agree more. And uh, it's uh, it's terrific both that you're encouraging uh, and are such an example for, um, for for how to do it so effectively, Lisa. Thank you. Please remember to uh, rate us on iTunes, judge us, and tell us we're worthy. And join us next time when our guest will be Joel Dudley, a data scientist who's leading a fascinating effort at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Where I was born! Go, David! And speaking of David, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Arrivederci. <laughs>